Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, it's easy to be curious about the lives of great American novelists. There's a strong attraction to the idea of sitting at a desk with your coffee or tea and creating whole worlds from mere imagination. The people who actually do that sometimes talk about the relationships they develop with their characters. What's not weirdly fascinating about that? Tom Parada is such a writer. He made his name in 1998 when, still unpublished, one of his manuscripts was picked up for movie treatment. The quirky, who-would-have-imagined tale told in Election, starring Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon, became a surprise hit, and Parada was off. In 2004, his novel Little Children received wide praise. He co-wrote the screenplay for the film, which earned him an Academy Award nomination. His novel The Leftovers was turned into an acclaimed HBO series. Prada's new novel, Mrs. Fletcher, concerns what happens to Eve Fletcher, her son Brendan, and the circle of people they interact with when he goes off to college. As he delves into issues of love, sex, identity, parenthood, friendship, and loneliness, did I say sex? Parada's writing captures contemporary culture with sharpness and wit. It's no wonder the word gifted is often used to describe him. Tom Parada read from Mrs. Fletcher and took questions from the audience at Seattle Public Library's Central Library on August 17th. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. Please note, this recording does contain unedited language of an adult nature. Good evening, I'm Stesha Brandon. I'm the Literature and Humanities Program Manager here at Seattle Public Library, and it's my delight to welcome you here to Central Library tonight uh, to see Tom Parada discuss his new novel, Mrs. Fletcher. It is now my pleasure to welcome Karen Maeda Allman from Elliott Bay Book Company, who will introduce Tom Parada. Good evening, and thank you for joining us tonight. And uh, I just want to start out with a thank you again to the Seattle Times for their book coverage. And Moira McDonald's here tonight, and also Nicole Broder. And I, if you're like me, you're looking obsessively every Friday for the listings and every Sunday for the reviews, the wonderful interviews, including one with Tom Parada, and also um, the Lit Life column. And, if you're not already a subscriber, or if you don't, don't take a look online, I recommend that you do. You can also access via their, their uh, phone app, which is how I often am reading those, kind of on the fly. But I just wanted to call you out and say very sincerely, thank you so much. So. Um. So Tom Parada is the best-selling author of nine books, and he has read with us at Elliott Bay a number of times, and this time we thought maybe we would kind of share the wealth with the greater Seattle community by inviting him to come and be part of this uh, library space. Um, he has written both short story collections and novels. His books include Little Children, for which he wrote the screenplay for the film adaptation, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for this work. He is also the author, author of The Abstinence Teacher, Nine Inches, and most recently, The Leftovers, a 2011 New York Times notable book, a bestseller for us, certainly. 
and this uh, book appeared on many best books lists that year. Uh, GQ, NPR's Fresh Air, Washington Post, Seattle Times, and then it was adapted, uh, and Tom Parada was very much a part of that, adapted um, into a Peabody Award-winning HBO series that ran for three seasons. His work has been featured in the Boston's One Book, One City program, and he's also been featured in the New York Times by the book series. Tonight, he's here to read from and speak about his new novel, Mrs. Fletcher, which just received a lovely front cover review in the New York Times book review. I think it's a perfect summer book. It's a mother-son story that lives, continues to live with you. There are two people struggling to deal with things that I think a lot of us deal with, but maybe not quite to that degree. Um, and, and I think that it'll, it's a story that really resonated for me. And what a wonderful book to read this summer, which I don't know about the rest of you, but it's, it's been kind of a trying and terrible time. And to be able to escape into this beautiful story, which also has some really deep truths um, to share with us about human nature, about relationships, and about the forces that shape us. So uh, Tom Parada will read, he'll speak, He'll take some questions from the audience about this book, about other books, and, uh, and then afterwards we'll um, invite, invite you to get a book signed if you'd like. We have more books for sale, both Mrs. Fletcher and the earlier books. So again, thank you for coming to Seattle Public Library tonight, and please join me in welcoming Tom Parada. Hi, uh, thanks so much for thanks so much for coming and uh, supporting the library, which uh, is such a beautiful place. I really uh, every time I'm in Seattle, I make sure to come here just because it's uh, I don't know if there's a nicer one in the in the whole country. I mean, it really is a, a great place. Um, so I'll, I'll read a little bit uh, from Mrs. Fletcher, and then what I really would love to do is just um, have a conversation uh, with you. Um, so. One thing I'll say is that the book is set in 2014, and I thought that I was being kind of up to the minute and really engaging with a lot of issues that were at the forefront of the national conversation at the time. And you know, we had a lot of problems in 2014, um, but we also had a president who was competent, intelligent, uh, and a decent human being, uh, rather than a neo-Nazi apologist. Um, and as a result, the book has taken on this air for me of like premature nostalgia. It's just three years ago, but it seemed to take place in a, in a better world. Um, so I, I just felt I needed to say that this week because uh, it's been a shocking week. Um, so as um, was said earlier, Mrs. Fletcher is about a mother and a son. And Eve Fletcher, the title character, is a 46-year-old woman uh, who's divorced and she has one son. And in the first chapter, she brings her son to college. And she comes home and has to decide who she is now that she's no longer a mom. And the book is really about uh, how she goes about creating a new identity for herself. And uh, she does it in a kind of accidental, 
unorthodox way. Uh, and her son is also trying to find a new identity and is maybe a little less successful. Um, but they're also surrounded by a bunch of other characters whose lives I go into. And I just want to read to you um, a couple scenes about a, a woman named Amanda. She's uh, the events coordinator at the senior center that Eve directs. Uh, so I'm going to read these two Amanda sections and then we'll talk. The Beekram instructor that night was Jojo, not Amanda's favorite. She would have preferred Kendra, the soulful, slightly overweight woman who read inspirational meditations about self-acceptance during savasana at the beginning and end of, of class. Kendra roamed the studio like a benign spirit, the goddess of encouragement, always ready with a supportive comment. Sometimes that was all you needed, a trinket of praise to get you through the most brutal poses, the ones that made you hate your body and wonder why you even bothered. Let's go, people. Jojo clapped his hands as if summoning a dog. Where's the energy? There's no such thing as halfway in Bikram. Jojo was a beautiful Asian man with the body of a gymnast and the soul of a drill sergeant. His adjustments were rare and brusque and sometimes borderline inappropriate, as if his lack of sexual interest in women gave him license to touch them wherever and however he pleased. Even so, Amanda knew that complaining about Jojo was pure luxury, like whining about the prices at Whole Foods. The real miracle was that anybody taught Bikram yoga in Haddington. 10 years ago, when she'd left for Sarah Lawrence, there hadn't been a single yoga studio in her hometown. Now there were three, as well as a CrossFit gym, a decent vegan restaurant, and a tattoo parlor whose owner had a degree from RISD. Without realizing it, she'd been part of a hipster reverse migration, legions of overeducated, underpaid 20-somethings getting squeezed out of the city, spreading beyond the pricey inner suburbs to the more affordable outposts like Haddington, transforming the places they'd once fled, making them livable again, or at least tolerable. Another reason for gratitude. Jojo's classes were more sparsely attended than Kendra's, so she had some room to spread out. No worries about her personal space getting invaded by a rude neighbor or slipping on a puddle of fresh-squeezed man sweat. She hated to be sexist, but it was undeniable. Men were gross at Bikram. Everybody perspired, but certain guys took it to a freakish extreme dripping like faucets through the entire 90 minutes of class, the foam of their mats squishing underfoot. Tonight, there were only five males in the class, none of them familiar, thank God. A couple of weeks ago, she'd found herself standing one row behind a guy she'd hooked up with on Tinder, a 42-year-old graphic artist named Dell, with long graying hair and a sad little belly bulging over the waistband of his Speedo. Their eyes had met in the front mirror, and he'd smiled in happy surprise. She was aware of his scrutiny throughout all 26 postures, and it had completely ruined her concentration. And then he'd tried to chat her up in the parking lot, as if they were old pals, rather than strangers who'd fucked once, 
just because they both happened to be bored and lonely at the same time. She wasn't sure why the encounter had unnerved her so much. Dale was a pretty nice guy. They'd actually done okay in bed together. And she was 99% sure his presence at the studio was pure coincidence and not the beginning of a stalking nightmare. But it didn't matter. It was just creepy to see him there, totally out of context, as if he were an actual human being rather than a figment of her sexual imagination. She went home that night and deleted her Tinder account so nothing like that would ever happen again. At the senior center, Amanda's tattoos were a constant source of friction with the clients and apparently an open invitation to criticism, like one of those bumper stickers that read, how's my driving? <laughs> she wished she could have supplied a toll-free number so the irate old folks could call at their leisure and leave a message instead of accosting her in the crafts room to inform her that she'd made a terrible mistake, that she could have been a pretty girl, and what the heck was she thinking? <laughs> At least wear some long sleeves, the sweet old ladies told her. A turtleneck and some dark tights might not be such a bad idea either. Something subtler and far more frustrating went on in the Bikram changing room where a number of the younger women had tattoos of their own, though of a more decorous suburban variety. A dolphin on the shoulder blade, a constellation of three or four stars around an ankle, a cheerful little bird on the nape of the neck. The first time Amanda undressed there, she felt a sudden chill of separation, her own more drastic aesthetic, marking her as an instant outsider, the badass chick with the cobra wrapped around her leg, the hand grenade on her breast, <laughs> the anarchist bomb on her thigh, and the meat cleaver, the only one she truly regretted, <laughs> dripping blood on her upper arm. She tried to compensate by being extra friendly, smiling at everyone she passed, but the others rarely smiled back. Most of them avoided eye contact altogether. Five years ago, when she'd been living in Brooklyn with Blake, she would have enjoyed this outcast feeling, the knowledge that she was a little too edgy for the yoga moms and single ladies of Haddington. But she wasn't that person anymore. She was lonely and looking for new friends, and it broke her heart a little every time she showered and changed without exchanging a single pleasant word or sympathetic look with anyone. She'd gotten so used to being ignored, she wasn't sure what to think when she emerged from the shower, a much too skimpy towel wrapped around her torso, and noticed a slender, pretty woman staring at her with a quizzical expression. Amanda had never seen this woman at Beak Room before, but she'd been aware of her throughout the class. It was hard not to be. She was one of those front row yoga goddesses enviably fit and limber, observing herself in the mirror with an air of scientific detachment as she tied herself in elegant knots, barely breaking a sweat. It was a cramped space, a single wooden bench set between two rows of lockers with several women milling about in various states of undress, trying not to get in one another's way. Amanda had just released the towel 
when she sensed a presence at her side. Excuse me? The woman's voice was surprisingly casual, considering that Amanda was naked and she herself was wearing nothing but yoga pants. I think we know each other. The stranger was even prettier up close, with black pixie-cut hair and blue eyes that seemed pale and bright at the same time. You went to Haddington, she continued. We were in AP English senior year. Her voice sounded vaguely familiar, but Amanda searched in vain for a name to connect to the face. It didn't help that she was distracted by the woman's breasts, which were small and pert, with optimistic upturned nipples. She couldn't help wondering what that would feel like, having boobs that defied gravity and a stomach so flat it might actually be concave. <laughs> she glanced with longing at her own discarded towel lying uselessly on the floor. I'm sorry, Amanda said, your name is? Beckett. After an awkward moment of silence, the woman smiled, realizing her error. In high school, I went by Trish, Trish Lozano. Holy shit, Amanda thought, Trish Lozano. She could see it now, the ghost of the girl she'd known, hidden inside a whole new person. I didn't recognize you, she said. You were blonde back then. Of course I was. Trish shook her head. I was such a cliche, the cute little cheerleader from hell. Amanda wasn't sure how to respond. She'd never thought of Trish Lozano as a cliché. She was more like the platonic ideal of an American high school girl, pretty and bubbly and super popular, always at the center of the action. And she'd been smart, too, which seemed even more unfair. Your name's Beckett now? I changed it in college. I got into acting, and Trish just seemed so blah. We were doing this all-female production of Waiting for Godot, and I don't know. Beckett just seemed like a cool name. <laughs> Trish rolled her eyes, amused by her younger, more pretentious self. Turns out I'm a terrible actor, so the joke was on me. But I kept the name. It's a big improvement. Amanda could feel herself nodding a little too emphatically, as if she were receiving news of profound importance. And it made her queasy to think of what she must look like, plump and flushed and naked, listening so intently to a beautiful, bare-breasted woman who called herself Beckett. You look great, Trish said, touching her gently on the arm. Are you still living here? It's just temporary. Amanda's face warmed with embarrassment. I was living with my boyfriend in Brooklyn, but it was a long story, not one she wanted to go into just then. She turned toward the open locker, rifling through her clothes until she found her bra. What about you? Visiting my mom. Trish made a sour face, as if this were an unpleasant obligation, like jury duty. I live in LA now. I went out there for film school and never looked back. My fiance is a DP, you know, a cinematographer. So I think we're pretty much stuck there. Involuntarily, Amanda's gaze strayed to Trish's left hand the small diamond gleaming tastefully, not the least bit boastful or obnoxious. Wow. Amanda hooked her bra, then gave the underwires a little tug, getting everything in alignment. That's exciting. 
She grabbed her panties, they were black and high-waisted, with stretchy lace panels on the sides, and pulled them on. She felt a little better now that she was decent, glad it was a good underwear day. <laughs> Do you work in the movie business too? I was a PA for a while, but now I teach at SoulCycle. Probably do it for a few more years till we're ready to start a family. Trish shrugged, not unhappily. You? Single, Amanda said, trying to sound matter-of-fact. Just getting my life in order. I'm the events coordinator at the Senior Center. They actually have a pretty good lecture series. Trish nodded, but there was a faraway look in her eyes, as if she weren't really listening. This is so weird, she said. I still think about you sometimes. Me? Amanda gave a puzzled laugh. She and Trish had barely exchanged two words in high school. Why? To be honest, Trish said, you kind of freaked me out. You're always staring at me like I was this horrible, stuck-up, shallow person, and I couldn't understand why you hated me so much. I didn't hate you, Amanda said. I didn't even know you. It's okay, Trish told her. I had this epiphany in college. It just hit me one day, like, fuck, I was a mean girl. That's why she hated me. Sometimes even now I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm just ashamed of the way I treated people. How selfish I was, such a little princess. So when I saw you here, I just thought I should come over and apologize, make things right. You don't need to apologize. I am so sorry, Trish said. And the next thing Amanda knew, they were hugging. Trish's proud little cheerleader boobs mashing into her chest. I am really and truly sorry for the person I used to be. <clears throat> not, not yet. Sorry, I just needed a sip. <laughs> There's more to the story. <laughs> I missed my chance for the good uh, segue. <clears throat> it only took a minute for Amanda to reactivate her Tinder account. <laughs> her old matches were gone, but she didn't care about that. She used the same photos as before and stuck with her tried and true tagline. If you're nice, I'll show you my other ones. She set the match distance for 15 miles and the age range for 35 to 55. That was the key in her experience. The older guys were out there, checking their phones every two minutes, just itching to be called out of retirement. And they'd happily drive through a blizzard with a flat tire if a woman in her 20s was waiting on the other end. Amanda understood this was a bad idea, not to mention a blatant violation of her recently instituted no-hookup policy. Tinder was like tequila. Fun today, sad tomorrow. <laughs> but sometimes you didn't have a choice. That unexpected reunion with Trish Lozano had really messed with her self-esteem. The thought of going home and eating a salad in front of the TV had triggered a wave of self-pity that bordered on rage. That's the highlight of my day, a fucking salad? It would have been fine, or at least marginally tolerable, if Trish had still been Trish a grown-up version of her teenage self, cute and predictable, flaunting a tacky rock, bragging about her frat boy stockbroker boyfriend. At least that way, Amanda would have preserved her sense of intellectual superiority, 
the illusion that she was an adventurous bohemian who'd chosen the road less traveled. But Trish, Beckett, was a completely new person, living the kind of life Amanda had always imagined for herself. My fiance is a cinematographer. How the fuck did that happen? It just seemed so unfair. The girl who'd been deliriously happy in high school was the one who'd reinvented herself, moving to a glamorous city and falling in love with an artist who loved her back, while Amanda, who dreamed of nothing but escape, had ended up right back where she started, with only a few stupid tattoos to show for all her trouble. I work at the Senior Center. They have a pretty good lecture series. She felt so stupid saying that she'd wanted to die. And then Trish had had the gall to hug her, to fucking apologize for her happiness, which was way worse than bragging about it. I am so getting laid tonight, Amanda thought, before they'd even let go of each other. Her match arrived in less than an hour, knocking furtively on the front door. She studied him through the peephole, amazed, as always, that this was even possible, that you could swipe at a photo of a stranger and the flesh and blood person would show up on your doorstep. This one was a little heavier than she'd expected. He claimed to be an avid cyclist, but he bore an otherwise reassuring resemblance to his profile pic. His name was Bobby, and he seemed charmingly ill at ease in the living room, like a teenager picking up his prom date. He wanted to know if it was all right to keep his shoes on and asked permission before sitting down on the couch. He said no to her offer of a beer, then changed his mind a few seconds later, but only if it wasn't too much trouble. Middle-aged men were often like this, tentative and overly polite. The guys her own age had more of a swagger, as if they were stopping by to pick up a well-deserved award. How was traffic, she asked. Piece of cake, he said. Well, thanks for making the trip. Thanks for hosting. He surveyed the decor with a skeptical expression, taking in the matching gray furniture, the gas fireplace, the vases and baskets full of dried flowers. This your place? I'm house-sitting. My parents are on a cruise. They're coming home tomorrow. This was the lie she always told because she didn't want any Tinder dudes ringing the doorbell at two in the morning, drunk and looking for company. Besides, the real story was too complicated. Her mother's unexpected death from a heart attack at the age of 62, her own return from the city to make the funeral arrangements and deal with the legal and financial crap. She was the only child of divorced parents, so it was all on her. And the fact that she just stayed because life in the city had gotten complicated. She'd broken up with her boyfriend and was living in a temporary sublet. And here was a whole house that suddenly belonged to her, though she couldn't bear to redecorate or even clean out her mother's closet. At some point, if the opportunity arose, she'd tell Bobby that her dad was a retired cop. Also not true. But certain precautions were advisable if you were going to invite strangers into your home and have sex with them. I went on a cruise once, he said. Wasn't that great? You couldn't pay me enough, she told him. When he finished his beer, they went out on the back deck to smoke the joint she'd asked him to bring. She wasn't a big pothead, but weed worked faster than alcohol, 
and had the added benefit of making everything seem a little more unreal and a lot funnier than it would have been otherwise, which was definitely helpful in a situation like this. Nice night, he said, nodding at the sky. Moon's almost full. Amanda didn't reply. She wanted to keep the small talk to a minimum. That had been her mistake with Dell. They'd talked for an hour before taking their clothes off, and it had ended up feeling a little too much like a real date, which was probably what caused all the confusion when they ran into each other at yoga class. I'm divorced, he said, in case you were wondering. I wasn't. At least he could take a hint. They smoked the rest of the joint in a strangely comfortable silence, as if they'd known each other a long time and had exhausted every possible topic of conversation. For a moment, it coincided with the realization that she was very high. She imagined they were a married couple, committed to spending every remaining night of their lives together until one of them got sick and died. Me and Bobby, she thought. Bobby and me. It was a ridiculous idea, but just plausible enough to make her laugh. What's so funny? Nothing. She shook her head as if it wasn't worth explaining. It's stupid. You have a nice laugh, he told her. They went back inside into her childhood bedroom. He sat on the edge of her narrow bed and watched her undress. She made a little strip tease out of it, undoing the buttons on her dress one by one, very slowly. He was a good audience. Oh yeah, he said more than once. You are so gorgeous. The dress fell to the floor. She stood there a moment in her black bra and panties, along with the knee-high boots she tugged on for the occasion. He nodded for quite a while, as if something he'd long suspected had turned out to be true. You're killing me, he said. You're totally fucking killing me. As far back as she could remember, Amanda had had mixed feelings about her body. She was shorter and heavier than she wanted to be, with big, full breasts that weren't great for yoga or running, but made a very positive impression in a situation like this. Oh, Jesus, he muttered as she dropped her bra on top of the dress. Look at those tits. Standing next to Trish Lozano in the harsh light of the changing room, Amanda had felt all the way, felt the way she had all through high school, chubby and dull and hopeless. But right now, shimmying out of her panties in the trembling yellow light, with Bobby studying her like a painting in a museum, she felt like something special. Want me to keep the boots on? Whatever's easier, he told her. I'm good either way. Now I'm done. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so if you ask questions, I'll repeat them so everyone can hear. Yeah, yeah, okay, yes. So the question is how um, the book sort of expanded. Um, because I, I started thinking I was just gonna write about Mrs. Fletcher. I thought I was gonna write a short, uh, kind of intense novel about, uh, which is the story of even the book. She comes home to the empty nest and ends up um, finding herself 
repeatedly going to this porn site that features middle-aged women. Um, she does it because she receives a, an anonymous dirty text calling her a MILF. Um, and she's not sure what the word means and she Googles it and it leads her to this site where all these um, women are, are sharing um, their sex lives with the world. And um, this happens at a moment when Eve is feeling like her own sexual identity has disappeared. And it's sort of um, inspiring in some weird way to know that she's a MILF, that she is, um, she still has it in some way. And she kind of tries on this identity, like, oh, I'm not just, um, you know, a, a mom who's kind of lonely, I'm a MILF. Um, and as soon as she does, the world starts to look different to her. It sort of gets this erotic charge, that because she's seen all these scenarios in the porn, too. Um, and so suddenly these other erotic possibilities reveal themselves. So this was my idea that was going to be the whole book. Um, but in the first chapter, Eve takes her son to school, and I got very interested in him. <clears throat> and instead of writing chapter two of Eve's story, I said, I, I want to know what the son's doing at school. And I wrote his story. Um, he meets a girl at school. I said, I want to know her story. Eve is working with Amanda. And I realized that you know, something was going to happen between them, and so I wanted to know who she was. And this, this is basically the, I, you know, what I was trying to do was write against my own inclination, which is always to have a kind of a large cast of characters and to switch points of view. Um, but I couldn't uh, conquer those inclinations. They, you know, it just, it's one of those things as you write more books and get older, it's either you um, embrace the idea that you are who you are as a writer, or you, even when I try to shake things up, um, my books come out like my books. The, I will say The Leftovers was, to me, a real, that was the real anomaly in my career, just because it borrowed from science fiction or speculative dystopian fiction. It had this big premise that was um, counterfactual. So that, that was a big change. And this felt a little bit more like kind of reclaiming the identity I'd had before that. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, so the question is, the, the book has a lot of discussion of gender. And if you recall, 2014 had a lot of discussion about gender. It was it, around that moment, um, maybe like a year or two before, um, what had been like a very academic discourse, you know, kind of gender studies discourse, suddenly made its way um, into the world. I remember I was having <clears throat> um, a talk with a friend of mine who was in divinity school. Uh, she, she came up to Harvard to do a postgraduate year, and I was asking her about it, and she said, oh, you know, we barely studied whatever, I can't remember what class it was, but she said, we barely studied anything. We just ended up talking about gender all summer. And it, it was the first time I'd even heard the um, word cisgender, um, and, it was, and she said, you know, we had, there were people who had, many people had, you know, pronouns that they needed to be addressed by. You know, it was the first time, all these phenomena that have now become kind of um, staples of uh, certainly college culture, but I think now mainstream culture as well. Um, the first time I became aware of them, and that, that was part of it. Um, and, you know, Brendan's going off to college, and then Eve takes a college class on gender and society. 
taught by a transgender teacher. And, and you know, these, these issues are, are in the background of the story, but Eve's story is also a story about identity. It's, you know, the MILF is this sort of sexual identity that, that she borrows. It's not something that comes from her, it's imposed on her by this text, but also by the culture of porn, which just says this is one available identity. Um, but it, she's searching for an identity and, and she takes it. So I feel like all these things are kind of clustered uh, together, though, you know, <clears throat> it's sort of my instinct as a writer not to go directly at, um, at the issue. So that would be like to write, uh, the, in the end, the, the trans character is actually um, very important in the book and, and uh, we get to know her pretty well, I think. But, uh, you know, it, it's sort of more interesting to me to talk about identity in this sort of comic way and then get a lot of voices kind of go, going at once. And, and I really felt like the book was about all sorts of characters um, going through the experience that a lot of us went through in those years of like being confronted with this new set of ideas um, that depending upon your age either um, seem quite obvious or um, you know really disorienting um, and not just age right uh, all sorts of other reasons uh, and because I, I did feel like that it's obviously it's very important to understand the experience of um, people, you know, trans people, but it's also important to understand the social context in which, um, you know, people who haven't had to think about gender identity in this way are coming to terms with it. Um, in the same way that, you know, to talk about race, um, we have to talk about the entire community and, and all of um, the struggles that people have understanding, you know, their own privilege or, you know, where where they stand in the in in the big picture. So the idea is that that it was really about the reaction of people learning or or resisting the, these these new ideas and and people experiencing um, identity and sex and in, in, in a number of ways. So it's funny how a book kind of you know really did just start with this comic premise about porn, but it, it then started interacting with these um, bigger, more, you know, obviously important social issues. Yes? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Eve, Eve is in a close, oh yeah, they, uh, so the question was why is Brendan, um, uh, why are his sections told in first person? So every other character in the book is described the way Amanda was in the section I read, close third person. Um, and I don't know what it was. When I went to Br uh, Brendan, I thought, first of all, he's kind of a jerk. Um, I, I was a little worried about trying to get in his head because I thought there may not be a lot going on there. Um, <laughs> but I also thought, oh, I can hear him, and he's sort of funny. There, there's something funny about um, how limited his uh, grasp of the world is and how self-centered he is um, and how in some ways innocent he is and scared he is. And, and I felt like um, I could just hear him and as a writer I, I thought let's just try that. Um, 
when I step back and look at it, I think what it really does is create this, um, it's just a jarring transition for the reader every time you switch from Eve or anybody else in the third person to Brendan. His voice is so strong and, and um, can be a little bit grating, I think. Um, but it, it, you know, again, the book is about, it's just about this family that is a mother and a son. Um, but you get a sense reading it that their worlds are incredibly separate, that they don't overlap very much, and, and you feel it in the, in the writing, I think, how, how separate they are. And, and um, I do think that microcosm is, a, a, at least in some ways, representative for the country. You know, it, it's um, in many ways, um, you know, people's, even people are very, in very close proximity, are not sharing the same reality. Uh, and, and the question, very specifically, I think, is how does this feminist mother get this um, son who seems just very comfortable with this sort of male privilege that the mom doesn't approve of, and, and um, can he change? You know, it becomes really the, the question for, for the book. So, you know, just as a writer, I, I thought the first person felt right to me, and so I did it, but now I can see that it was, it felt right because I think it has a certain effect. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so the question is the difference between novel writing and screenwriting. Um, so there, uh, one thing I'll say is, uh, when I wrote the script for Little Children, I wrote it with the director, Todd Field, um, and that was a very collaborative experience, but it was just the two of us, and when we were done with the script, my work was done. You know, that how, that's how uh, feature screenwriting works. But with the leftovers, that is a truly collaborative experience that um, extends into production, uh, editing. It, it, so the, the, writer, the writer's room is really the center of a TV show, and there were seven or eight people in the room. Uh, the showrunner was Damon Lindelof, uh, who did Lost, and he's a, just a brilliant writer and, and um, very bold, creative personality. But one thing Damon insisted on in the writer's room was that we broke every scene and most of the time every line of dialogue in the room. So we had to have seven or eight people um, reaching consensus. Um, so other shows sometimes work very differently, like they'll make an outline and then the individual writer will take it home and fill in the outline. But we, we just went at it in this incredibly uh, grueling kind of detail-oriented way. So that when you took an outline home to write, you actually had, I've, you know, 75 or 80 percent of the script already there. Um, you know, it would change, but, but uh, we just broke it in, in great detail. What that means is that it's so different from novel writing where you're alone and you're making all the decisions and you don't need anyone's approval, but you don't have anyone's help. Um, so, I, you know, to me, I, I feel like I was a, you know, a, a solo performer and then I joined a band. Uh, and, you know, the sound we made was, was really big and it was exciting, but, um, but, you know, we also had to, like, spend time in the band and got to know each other, like, a little too well and certain people got on your nerves. You know, it's like... It was all that, and, and it certainly taught me a great lesson about collaboration, which is, 
um, you know, the, the tension was, was very productive. Like, it was hard, especially the first season when we were using the book. Um, you know, I was having to cede my control. Um, I was trying not to be defensive, trying to be a productive collaborator, but nonetheless, I sometimes, um, you know, you, my feelings got hurt or I lost certain battles and, um, you know, there were, there were rough days. And then we got through the first season and then if you watch The Leftovers, you can kind of see it on the screen. Like, it took us a while to find the voice of the show. Um, but we found it, I think, in the second half of the first season. And then when we got back for season two, I, I sort of understood my role. Damon and I really trusted each other. You know, we had a great team of writers and it, it started to, um, it got easier and it got more fun. Uh, and, and that continued into, into the third season. But, but I was also writing this book at the same time. So I'd be out there working out in LA, working on the scripts and then coming home and trying to write the book. And it was odd, I had two entirely separate lives. They were separate geographically and they were separate creatively. And I had to make that transition repeatedly. And it was a, it was a difficult experience. Um, and in fact, I, f I had a deadline for this book and we got called back for season three before I expected it. And I ended up having to, you know, write, write the book while I was working on the show. I, you know, I'd work on the show all week and I'd work all weekend on the book. And we finished both in October. I finished the book and the show ended in October. And I haven't done anything since. I've just still, <laughs> I'm still re recovering from, from that experience. But um, you know, now I'm very nostalgic about the writer's room and feel like it would be great whenever I write a novel to have like seven people in a room nearby who can give me the good lines. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, thanks, that, that's interesting. Um, so she was just um, saying that, you know, if she didn't know I had written the book, she would think that maybe a, a woman had written it, which I think is very high praise. Um, and you, my acknowledgments are full of, of women, um, partly because, uh, interestingly, publishing is just a, um, at least in my experience, my, my agent, all, all my entire career has, is a woman, all my editors have been women, uh, you know, but I also thank my wife and my daughter um, in the acknowledgments. I wouldn't say any of those people were models for the characters. Um, they were people who helped me write and publish the, the book or made my life, uh, you know, better at home. Um, but I have been writing about women uh, for, I would say like the, for the first half of my career I was very much considered like a guy writer. My first book, Bad Haircut, is about male friendship and I wrote a book called The Wishbones about a, a wedding band that are these, these male rock musicians. Um, but I would say the second half has been very heavily um, weighted toward uh, stories of women. So like little children, uh, abstinence teacher, and Mrs. Fletcher, I think are part of a group um, about women of my generation who are, um, you know, what I'm, I'm really interested in women of my generation because they were the first ones to grow up 
in, um, I, I don't even know what to say, it wasn't a feminist culture, but it was a culture that accepted um, the feminist narrative in a way that it hadn't before. So when a lot of women I knew in college, they really felt like, okay, I can have the career that I want to have, I can have the family I want to have. Nobody had really tried it yet. And, you know, they've discovered um, that some, some of them have discovered it's possible to do that. Some of them have, just have decided it wasn't possible. Um, some of them are, you know, found that there was tension between the different identities that they were trying to live. And so each of these stories is really um, looking at just in some broad sense, like women that I, I have known. But I didn't, I didn't never really have like a, an individual person in mind. Um, the characters always sort of come out in, in the writing. I, I don't have much, I usually have a situation but not a character and the character is, is produced in the writing. Okay, one more question. Oh yes. Well, um, that's, that sounds like a much more purposeful, okay. <laughs> the, the question was, um, yeah, how did, how did Election go from being a book I couldn't publish to being a film? And it, it, you know, it really is, to me, it's like the little Cinderella story that I got to live. Um, because I don't know that I'd be here tonight if that hadn't happened. Um, I had written and published uh, Bad Haircut and actually at, at the time I, I had written three, there was a period where I had written three books. This book that remains unpublished, Bad Haircut and Election and none of them were, were published. And you know it's easy to lose faith in yourself at, if you, you do this work and you feel it's the best you can do and I you know, I thought, boy, these are pretty good books. And I just could, couldn't break through. And then in 1994, a very small press uh, picked up my story collection, uh, Bad Haircut. And, and so I finally was a published writer. And I thought, oh, maybe I can get a job teaching at a college. Um, but Election had been written bef uh, in 93, and it was sitting in my Oh, I, I submitted it to my agent, my then agent, um, and she said she had submitted it to some publishers and they all said, um, this is interesting, but it, it feels like a young adult novel, except there's too much sex. <laughs> and at that time, there was a very strict division between YA and adult work. Now it's, it's a little fuzzier now. Um, and there's YA is able to do a lot more. Um, but she just said, I don't think I can publish this book. Uh, and so I put it in the drawer and I started working on The Wishbones, the book about the rock musicians who play in a wedding band. And I was reading from that at a writer's conference and a screenwriter was in the audience. And she said, oh, this, I, that, that book feels like a movie. The chapter you read feels like a movie. And I have these friends who are independent producers and you should get in touch with them. Uh, or actually, she, she told them to call me. So these guys called me and I said, look, I'm not done with the wishbones. When I am done, I would love to get it to you. Um, but I had the 
wherewithal to just say, but you know, I have this unpublished book about a high school election, um, and I think it's pretty good. Do, do you want to take a look? And they, but I said it very sheepishly because for me it was a failure. Um, but they didn't treat it that way. They're like, nobody else has seen it. You know, so for them it was this exclusive look at, you know, um, a never before published book. And I sent it to them and they really liked it. Now this also, again, these things happen in ways that are mysterious. 1999, when film historians go back, they said that was the year of the teen movie. There's all these movies came out, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You, was the, I don't know if Heathers came out that year, but there were all these sort of teen movies that, it was just a really viable genre at the time. So they looked at that, the mix of what publishers couldn't deal with and said, That's, that sounds good. Um, MTV Films had just started up and uh, these producers had seen uh, Citizen Ruth, Alexander Payne's movie, at Sundance, and they're like, he would be great for this. And so, all of a sudden, this book that was a failure was optioned and was given to this hot young director who loved it, and then he and his partner wrote this amazing script, and there was this young woman that people had heard, you know, there's some buzz around this Reese Witherspoon. Um, it all just happened really fast, and my publisher then got wind of the fact that a movie was being made, and they the book got into the pipeline and it barely beat the movie as a result of that. But it you know, just went from being this thing that just was dead to um, having this sort of charmed life. And then it became this movie that people still talk about you know, all these years later. So uh, you know, it, was, it was just a, kind of an amazing experience for me. Um, I, I, guess, uh, I guess that's it, but thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stacia. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Tom Parada read from Mrs. Fletcher and took questions from the audience at Seattle Public Library's Central Library on August 17th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can hear the full recording on our website, KUOW.org. Tune in again soon.